Hello, this is Nikki, Mindset and Life Coach, and you are listening to the Mind House Ball Podcast, where we are on a mission to normalize normal conversations, get comfortable with our mental health, and provide space for growth, learning, and empowerment. Thank you for joining us, and I'm so glad you are here. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Nikki, how are you? Oh, I'm really good, thank you. Thank you so much for taking this time to come on and I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. I really appreciate it, thank you. <laughs> Do you want to give us a little introduction as to who you are? Okay, um, I live in Sydney. I've been married for about 20 years. I have two beautiful daughters who are both teenagers. Uh, I was a professional photographer for some time and I then became a writer and I accidentally became an environmental activist. Uh, <laughs> so I feel like I'm juggling all these things. Um, yeah, so that's, I'm half Italian, as you can tell. So, yeah. That, yeah, that's a very brief summary of my life. Yeah, thank you. And um, we actually connected because you reached out to me through Instagram, but you saw me on Facebook, right? And Yeah, I saw like you. On yeah. Facebook and I listened to some of your podcasts and then, yeah. yeah. And um, I'll let you um, give a brief summary of your experience, but I think um, it's important for us to just cover that we had a quick chat, or it wasn't a quick chat, we had a chat um, about your experience and we really wanted to use the podcast as a bit of a vehicle for you to share your story and your experience mm. um, within um, things that you've been through and with the views to helping other people mm-hmm. um, who might also be going through something similar to you, but also, yeah. um, well, there's a huge, there's a huge message. I won't, I, I'll let you explain. So do you want it's to give a us just very big story? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, do you want to give us a brief summary of um, your experience within your, I suppose your upbringing? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I was raised in a fundamentalist church and it was my entire world. I was raised by Lake Macquarie and there were five kids and it was just busy, busy. My entire life was pretty much church activity. So we went, we had like five church sermons a week uh, and we would be preaching two to four times a week. And if you weren't preaching or at a sermon, you were meant to be preparing for church or um, preaching or reading the literature like it was it was constant Um, but it was amazing like it gave me so much security it gave me my entire belief system it gave me my entire social circle which was just beautiful there were like so many families that just had lots of kids and like there were like always houses of other um, church members you could go to and there'll be like 10 kids there that you could play with and we all lived close to each other we could ride our bikes to each other's houses or walk to each other's houses and we'd have sleepovers and it was just it was so busy and um we were very separate from the world like we were told not to um socialize with unbelievers or outsiders or worldly people uh, but we did go to mainstream uh, mainstream school because there weren't enough of us to have our own school so there was a degree of socializing with outsiders um, mm. 
because we had to go to school, but we weren't meant to really befriend them or go to their houses for social interaction, um, really, unless the goal was to convert them. So if you were socialising with someone who was not a member of the church, you were, your intention was meant to be to convert them. Um, otherwise, you were actually just protecting yourself from them. And there were like a lot of uh, activities that were forbidden, which automatically meant you couldn't go to their house because the activity was something that was forbidden. So one, you couldn't go there to socialise. Uh, two, you, whatever the party event was, was forbidden, so you couldn't go. So we were very uh, insulated and very yeah. protected. And um, the sermons were very, very repetitive. So you knew what the rules were. You knew what the beliefs were. It was very fixed um, and rigid and, and, and boxed. So it was very safe. You, if you were inside, you felt very, very safe. Yeah. And at the age of 12, I actually wanted to get baptised and I went to my father and I said, I, I really, really love God and I really believe this is God's religion. I want to get baptised. And he said, well, you're very young. Like usually I don't baptise people till the adults, but I know your heart and I know how seriously you take this and how strong your faith is. Um, okay, I support you uh, because it's you, because I know you. I'll let you get baptised this young and then I had to go through a process of um, meeting with some of the priests and they are, ask you questions and you go through study material. So I had to like go through and make sure I'm really bad with history. So I had to try and get all my history right. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I passed the exams. <laughs> um, and yeah, so at 12, I dedicated myself and promised God I would always love him and always be his follower and a member of his church. Yeah, so it was it was big. It was absolutely everything in my world, and I would have died like that. I would have uh, given my life for it. My faith was so strong, and my love for it was so strong. Wow. Yeah, so that's up to the age of 12, and then um, I ended up becoming a full-time preacher, and so I was spending like 30 hours a week after I left school um, oh. preaching. And so that means I didn't really go beyond year 10, um, but that was honoured in the church. You were, you were a gold star for doing that. So I was a gold star. Um, and then when I was about 17, uh, my family received this mysterious letter in the letterbox and invited, we were invited, my parents, to become missionaries in a very isolated town on the east coast of Tasmania. <laughs> Um, and this is unusual because most missionaries actually applied to become missionaries. So okay. they had to put in a submission and if they were approved, then they would actually go to missionary school and mm. they would be taught how to be missionaries and they have to qualify and graduate from missionary school and they'd be sent somewhere. But my family was so honourable mm -hmm. <laughs> and highly regarded that we kind of this letter snuck through the system straight into our letterbox and invited us to this little town, um, which was teeny weeny town. And there was oh, one yeah. Oh, yeah, on the East Coast, like, just on. Cold. It was so remote. It was so cold. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, and so this letter was viewed as actually being from God. 
basically this God or virtually wrote this letter through whoever the man was who sent it to us, um, who actually was like one of the higher up traveling ministers in the area. Um, and so my parents thought it was from God and they had actually just purchased uh, this beautiful, I think it was 300 acres up near Tari. And they were in the middle of building a house and it was their dream. This house was mm -hmm. their dream. And they were halfway through building it when the letter came. And so that just like everything stopped and they decided to, they had to follow God's will. And so they had lived in the house by the lake their entire married life. I don't know, 20 years or something. And so you can imagine how disruptive that was and how much clutter we had and the ordeal of like selling the house and emptying the house and moving to Tasmania. And like, I cried, I just cried the whole way. You're like all the way to Melbourne. I cried and vomited. I get, I discovered that I suffer from travel sickness and I vomited the entire ferry trip. I was crying and vomiting from Melbourne to Tasmania um, and I didn't stop for a long time. Um, yeah, even though I loved God and I was faithful, it was, it challenged me Challenging. immensely because I was ripped from all my friends as well. And I had just started kind of liking this guy. Yeah, I was going to say there was a guy, right? There was a guy, yeah. And he was my first boyfriend. And so um, he, uh, he, came along and he was very confident and very flirtatious and he was mm. like the first person who ever kissed me or said anything nice to me really mm. uh, complimented me and this was a really really big deal I a boy had never like touched me and he like rubbed my arm one day and I was like oh my god this is amazing he touched my arm <laughs> one day he said it was I was observing I'm like oh he complimented this is incredible. <laughs> I, was, I was on a high um, because like we weren't allowed to do the sex education classes at school and yeah. um, dating was forbidden until you were old enough to get married. So um, even though I had a crush on a guy at school, I couldn't act on it because he was not a believer. Um, right. And I was too young. But like this other guy, he was in the church and he was very... Um, presented himself perfectly mm. um yeah so anyway I found out just before we kind of moved that um one of my friends said he was flirting with her and I was like really and I confronted <laughs> him and we're like we're both like telling each other the same stories that you've like been flirting with both of us and then he said to me you know you're the one you're the one you're the one for me mm. and I was like oh, okay it's just misunderstanding and so but I was kind of like, going, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I really like him anymore. That's a bit weird. And then anyway, we moved to Tasmania. And then, of course, because I was yanked from him, suddenly he was my knight in shining armour. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't want to lose him. Anyway, so then we started dating really seriously. And, and we got engaged. And then he moved down, um, eventually moved down after a very, very long engagement. Um, it was going to be like a two-year engagement because we were about 18, but we knew we were too young to get married. So we got engaged because we wanted to commit. Mm. But then um, the wedding was going to be when uh, I was about 20. Yeah. 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 And um, Tasmania was 
just freezing. It was so cold. And there was so much like preaching and church going that a lot of it was out of the house. So you had to travel places. Yeah. Um, And the church, it was like this little hall in the middle of freaking nowhere. (laughs) It was like 45 minute drive to nowhere. And the church door would rattle and there was this big gap underneath and this icy wind would howl in um, and the windows would rattle and there was an open fireplace. And if you sat near the fireplace, one side of you would like literally like burn from the fire and it was oh so cold. The other side was fr- would freeze. That's like the temperature difference. And um, wow. there, was this, <laughs> there was a priest there and um, they ate a lot of lentils and, uh, he had a really strange habit of standing up off the pew, literally bending over and farting. Oh. Yeah, I said farting. Really, really loudly. Like, so it would almost like make the chairs like rattle. They were like the biggest, loudest oh. gases, vibrating gas. <laughs> and he would do it through the whole, like however long the service was. Like it was normal. And like it was completely normal and like, his family didn't react and like my family, I have, I have siblings as well. And we were just like, 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 like we're not, we're not prudish, but like we were stifling our laughs. It was bizarre. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> it was well, really you, the, it's the, to me, so I've, I've never sort of had a discussion with anybody like I have with you in terms of, I didn't really have a religious upbringing and it's kind of a new world to me. And the thing that stood out so much about um, your story when you were sharing it with me the first time is that you talked about having this security and this Mm. safe place because you were, you given your beliefs, you were told that this is correct. So there was Mm. no sort of option or question about Mm. it because it was so, strong and these are your beliefs and then that builds this community for you and this Mm. safe space for you and I've never really seen it like that because from it's it's never really been something that I've thought about which is the reason why I love this podcast because it gives me so many things to think about every time I have all of these conversations but um you've got such a huge story to share and obviously the the next part is that you're no longer in the church mm. so you were raised and you're married and um you experienced this life in the church so where did, where, what 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 happened uh, well this is really the story this is mm. this is what it's all about so i had my children and um there was uh, the church told us that we had to put the church before our kids. We were meant to be loving and kind and all the good things a parent should be. But above all that, the church was to become, was to be before our children, more important than our children. Um, and there was uh, some teachings that told us there was certain behaviour that was forbidden. And how can I say this? <laughs> um, we were meant to refuse uh, certain activities which could jeopardise our health. And from outsiders' point of view, you know, they might judge us as being like, well, that's a harsh decision to make. But, like, from inside, you know, don't necessarily want to adopt that belief because you don't want to put 
your children after anyone like God created you to love and protect and commit to and raise and nurture your children. He, like I was told and I felt that, that I had that for my children, mm-hmm. but there was a belief and teachings that if it came to the crunch, uh, I, I won't give examples, um, but we should put God before our children, even if it meant our children would die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all that faith I had and all that confidence I had and assurance, it wasn't the same. I could look in the mirror and go, I would give my life like that for, for my God and for my church. But looking at my most adorable, beautiful little girls, I couldn't do it. No. Um, I was like, oh, I, think I'd, I think I'd do anything to save their life. I don't think I could, I don't think I could say no or could I, or could I, maybe I could, but like, what if the, the, the church told us if we, you know, if we said no and our children died, well, they'd get everlasting life. But if we accepted it and their life was saved, well, they'd lose eternal life. So you, you're in this bind, you're like completely trapped because, do you choose temporary life for eternal life? But what if the religion's not right and you've just sacrificed their life for nothing? Mm. Like I would kill myself. I couldn't live with myself. Yeah. Um, and so like I became mentally handcuffed and I kept playing out scenario after scenario and imagining could I be strong enough to choose God over my children and I couldn't make a decision. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Like one one choice of life over another choice of life, I was stuck. And I got stuck for years and years. And then I kept thinking, well, if 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 I can't do that, well, I should just not worry about the rest because there's like five sermons a week and all the preaching and all the reading and like if I can't, if I know I can't follow that one rule, mm. why would I? Why would I bother with the weight of the other million rules? Right. And so I kept trying to decide if I could follow this rule or not. And um, and so that was one major thing. Um, but the, yeah, go. Ahead. Yeah, yeah. You go. don't have to answer it because yeah. this isn't one that we discussed. But do you know other people within your church community that did make that choice? not personally but there were stories and these people were like can you get above gold star like they were like so honored they were like glorified uh, that that sorry that word's probably a little incorrect they were viewed as like as being so grateful and we were so humbled by their faith, like their faith was amazing. Like yeah. they were the most incredible examples of inner strength mm. that they could do such a thing. Yeah, and they like, they they were like, the stories of them were like in the publications and everything. They yeah. were, they were so honorable, these people who could have such strength. Yeah. That's wild. And the, yeah. the gold star that you're referring to, you, you, this is actually a, a starring system. This isn't just you using uh, it. It was a way. I'm, um, I'm putting a very simple label on yeah. very technical but labels like that were in the a church. system, right? Where you would, you, you, 
you can do things to become a, a, a gold star, for example. They had all different complicated yeah. titles, yeah. <laughs> um, and they said there was no hierarchy. There was lots of discussion about there being no hierarchy and everyone being humble and equal. Uh, but there was a definite hierarchy. And I've just simplified it by using gold star. So I don't give away yeah. the name of the church. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's just my little cute label for it. But yeah. yeah. Okay. And there were different like hierarchies in different levels. So the women could have a hierarchy in relation to the, how much time they spent preaching. That was one level. Yeah. Um, the men had a different level where they could hold positions in the church. Mm. And so they had all different titles for that. And then there was even higher hierarchies where you got in positions that were outside your own congregation that became bigger um, um, in the headquarters and people who would like travel and they were like really, really high. And then there was another level above that, which was like completely like um, inspired by God. God personally directed these men that were like at the very, very top. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. So the thing to me about this story is that, mm. When we talk, you just seem so normal. Mm. And I think um, you've had this huge, really interesting, but to me, kind of crazy upbringing and something which, looking at you, you wouldn't have a clue. And I think the main thing that I brought that... We'll get, we're going to get into this now because you're sort of your life after the church and the complications that you ran into and the challenges from other people's judgments. But the main thing is for me is that this wasn't an option for you. This was something which you're, you had no choice but to do from, from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. There was no choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was no choice. And, um, okay. So, um, I'm talking too much. No, um, go ahead. <laughs> so, so you've you've got these two beautiful little girls, and you've begin. You've this is the first time you've started to question mm. reality and question what is right and what's wrong. And is this is there this higher power or is there not? Mm. And um, and then so you ran into a few mental health challenges from from here on in, right? Yeah, just just really briefly, I just want to touch on the other issue um, was that the church very, very strongly believed that our church was sanctioned by God and all other people and churches were evil and from the devil. Mm -hmm. And other churches were actually more from Satan than the average person in the community. Right. Uh, and, And other belief systems and people who weren't in our church did so out of uh, willful, either willful ignorance or because they were sinister and bad people and choosing to follow the devil's behaviour. So the other thing that I was challenged by was that I didn't think people, I started to see people outside the church who I didn't think were evil. And I saw that they were following their church because they were sincere and I just, I looked at my kids and I was like, I don't want to tell my kids that everyone outside our church is bad. Cause like, I actually don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't want to teach my kids to be that bigoted that everyone who doesn't believe that what we believe is bad. And yeah. so that was the other thing that really challenged me that 
that affected me to um, lose my faith. Where do you think that belief came from? Where, so, um, and I'm just purely interested in this from um, a perspective of knowing how we sort of consume and, and take in information and how we can mold it and reflect it based on what is our emotional home and what we know to be true in our map of the world. So you've had all of these beliefs given to you. This is your belief. You have got, you've, you didn't even know there was other options to believe other things. So where do you think it started to come from where you're like looking at the other people because you've been told your whole life, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad, they're the devil. And now you've kind of been able to see them and where, like, where does that come from? I moved out of home <laughs> and I moved to Sydney and um, I was on my own and I had to live in the big bad world. And so by the lake, I had my community, church community. I was able to close myself off in the safety of that. Um, in Tasmania, I had the church community with my family and we had a strong network. I was able to close myself off um, from everyone outside. Yeah. And then I moved to Sydney and I was on my own and I had to integrate in other churches where uh, my family wasn't known as a gold star and people didn't know how strong we were. And I really have always had social issues. Um, and so I find it really hard to integrate because I want to integrate so much that I actually talk too much. And then I say stupid stuff and then people get annoyed. So I constantly, that's the other half of the book, really interesting um and then so I had to try to integrate without the security of my family like creating this like beautiful aura around me uh, that they created and they had this safety network and this beautiful community and when I moved to Sydney it wasn't there and so then I kind of was floundering on my own and trying to replicate and find all the things I had always experienced and the church had always told us existed and it wasn't there no. I was like in um, North Sydney and they were uh, mostly wealthy people mm. or they were a lot older than me. So I was only like 20 and really, really young mentally and emotionally. And a lot of them were about 30, mm. the single and 30 and working in, you know, high level office jobs or married and wealthy and hardly any kids, almost no kids in the inner city. Mm. Um, and I, I didn't, I didn't feel what I felt before and I tried really, really hard to feel that warmth of the community and it just felt icy and I didn't feel the love anymore. And that was probably the, one of the biggest catalysts. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's talk about what happens after this then. Hmm. Okay, so now now it gets nasty. Um, so when um, this wondering about whether I could let my children die mm. and wondering if I wanted to teach them to be bigots um, made me wonder if I wanted to hold on to my church. But it wasn't just a matter of holding on to the church. What was like, well, if the church is from God and, and it gives us eternal life, well, I want it, don't I? Like, why would I give that up? That's like what I want to give to my children. I want to give them eternal life. Um, Conflict. <laughs> and if I let it go, well, I've condemned us all to death. So is it right? And should I stay? Or is it 
not right and I should go. And also the feelings of disloyalty to God and the feelings of disloyalty to, to my family. Like at, at my wedding, my dad gave a speech and he said, you were so proud. Anita, she's been through challenges in her life, but she's always, always held strong to her faith. She's never let it go. She's never questioned it. She's such a strong, faithful person. And my father was so proud of me. I was like, I was pretty much one of the gold star kids. I, I was really good. <laughs> and, um, and, and I knew I was going to let him down big time. Didn't cope. I didn't, I didn't cope with that yeah. at all. Knowing, knowing the degree of disappointment and potentially anger. Um, yeah. Yeah. And in extension, they might all not talk to me again, cast me off. And I'd be, as well as having no one come to church, I might not even have my family anymore. They might be gone. It might all be over with them. Yeah. Who, because there's different rules and, like, the more you follow the rules, the more gold star you are. So if they wanted to be very diligent following the the church rules, they could decide not to talk to me if they wanted to cut me off. And um, they'd be viewed, they'd be viewed nobly for that. <laughs> and um, there are different rules that you can break but that would get you cut off. So my whole time I was like trying not to break any of the rules that would get me cut off. Mm. So if I named the church in the book, um, that actually is a rule where I would officially be cut off and they would not talk to me ever again. Mm. So that's one of the reasons I don't mention the church because I don't want to lose the, rem the remnants of a relationship that I potentially have with, with my family. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so with all that pressure, I actually... I actually went crazy. I actually lost my mind and tried not to cry. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, yeah, I actually, I actually went into a psychosis, and nothing, nothing stands alone in this world. Nothing's simple or uncomplicated. Everything's woven in with other stories. So. My stories were, were all woven in, which you've seen that everything's connected so far. Yeah. So then we get another link and a chink in the chain. Um, so um, anxiety and hypochondria yeah. are, are, are undiagnosed in my family, but they're absolutely there, but they're denied. They're not diagnosed because you're not meant to actually really see people for mental health issues in the church. It's pretty much been forbidden. Um, and so a lot of us are like really struggling because we don't actually know what's wrong with us. We just know we don't feel good and we're really strung out and we have these crazy thoughts. Um, and with hypochondria, uh, it's can, I think it can be genetic and I think it can be learned. So I learned it from my mother um, who would actually deny that, that she has that issue. Um, and, you know, I see I pass it on to my, I'm passing it on to my kids. Like, I'm not saying it's my mother's fault. We pass on this yeah. rubbish <laughs> to our families and our kids if we don't process it. Right. Um, and so we worry about our health. And so this was linked with um, the issues of faith because I was like, well, 
I might die. Um, and the church had told us outside of the church, there is zero, absolutely zero hope of an afterlife if you're not in the church. So along with everything else I was going to lose, I lost my hope of an afterlife if I was to leave the church. And so suddenly at the age of 30 with, or like 33 with two kids, I suddenly had the reality of my own mortality come crashing down on me. And I had no skill set, no f- beliefs to deal with the fact that I was going to die. And it like, I actually like went crazy with that as well. And so then I was like, I actually thought I was dying. And so then I was like, I started going to doctors for reassurance that I wasn't dying or if I was dying, catch it early. And so then I started going to doctors and getting tests and I got really sick and I like lost so much weight. I was just a skeleton and my hair fell out and my scalp was peeling and I had rashes all over my body and my face was all red and my nose was dripping and my throat was like red raw and my chest was burning. Um, I could barely walk. And so then I was so sick. I kept going to the doctors going, what's wrong with me? Can I have another blood test? Can I have an, I've got headaches. And And so they'd send me for more tests and more tests and the tests were always clear. And then I'd be okay for a day. One day I would maybe get 12 hours of relief. Oh, I'm not dying. The test is clear. And then another symptom would come up. I'd get a painful lump in my breast and that would happen again. And then I'd go back then the anxiety would come back that quickly. That, that's, that's how much, that's how limited the relief was, maybe 10 to 12 hours of relief after a test before the next symptom reared its head. It was like either the devil or cancer was moving around my body and just teasing me that I was going to die. And so then I'd go and have uh, a mammogram and an ultrasound and then they'd be like, well, no, it's just... It's actually just a cyst. It's just a cyst. That's fine. Okay, I don't have cancer. 10 hours of relief. Then I get a chronic pain in my chest that wouldn't go away. I'm like, okay, there's pain in my chest. It's really bad. It's really bad. It's really bad. And then I'd wait for like three weeks and the pain would still be there. So painful I couldn't sleep. So after three weeks, I'd go to the doctor for another test. Didn't find anything. And this just happened on and on and on and on and on and it did not stop. And then um, I was so stressed and I was crying all the time and I couldn't think straight. Um, And then I had two massive blows to my head. I was so stressed. I hit my head twice really hard. I once was on the corner of the car boot. It wasn't quite all the way up. It was down a bit and I misjudged it and like slammed my head into the sharp edge of the boot. And another time kitchen cupboard was left open. I think I left it open because I was so out of my head. And I bent down and I stood up and I cracked my head into the corner of the cupboard and I got a dent in my skull. And, and I was like really worried I had a head injury and that I was bleeding in the brain and I was going to get a clot. And then I was going to have a stroke while I was driving the car. And then I was going to kill the kids because I was going to have a car accident while they were in the car. <laughs> and then, So then I'm back at the doctor and, um, and that week, Liam Neeson's wife had a ski accident and she had run into a tree and the next day she had died. And another head injury happened that same week where someone had just 
bumped their head and the next day they, they were dead. And so my doctor was like, well, just to be sure, we'll send you for a CT scan. And this is actually a really, really big pivotal moment in the story. And then I'm having the CT scan, but no one like had actually told me what a CT scan is. I didn't know what it was. Like I thought it was an X-ray of your head. Yeah. The doctors don't tell you. The doctors don't tell you how much radiation you're getting, what the test involves. There's no information. There's zero. They do not tell you. You're completely uninformed. And I even rang the radiologist because I actually studied dental radio, uh, radiography. So I had a bit of knowledge little bit of knowledge of radio radiation enough to be paranoid and so i rang the radiographer and she she was like i said um can you tell me like what level of radiation is involved in this test and she goes not high you want to book in and that was her answer and i was Mm. like okay (laughs) okay and then um so and the place i went to because it was free the machine looked like it came out of the ark it was so (laughs) old and it wasn't until i was like part way through it that I started working out that they were actually taking dozens of x-rays of my head and it wasn't stopping. It wasn't stopping. It just went on and on and on. And the woman was just so brusque. She wasn't even talking. She wasn't coaching me through, but she wasn't saying how many to go, how long we've got to go. And each beep, I was like, okay, that one's going to give me cancer. A beep, that one's going to give me cancer. Beep. I've got cancer and it was like playing a Russian roulette until I felt there were no empty cartridges left until I absolutely had to have been given cancer from this scan because there was so many x-rays. It was ridiculous. And it is ridiculous that patients are given zero education on this. Mm. Um, And I was, and while it was happening and it took twice as long as she said it was going to, and that made that unnerved me as well. And I was like, I think I've got a problem. I know I've got a problem. Dear God, I've got a problem. Please stop. Just please stop now. Just stop the x-ray machine. I know I've got a mental health issue. I'm not going to have any more tests. I'm going to deal with this issue. But then the x-ray machine didn't stop. And then I was... It just kept going and going and more and more beeps. And I was like, I've, I've just given myself cancer. My fear of being sick has actually just killed me. Yeah. And that was a pinnacle moment where I, from that moment on, I believed I had cancer. Yeah. And I went into basically like a full psychosis of living with cancer, but not having had a test that said I had cancer. And my life imploded. Yeah. yeah, I read part of your book. Um, so Anita, actually, just for the listeners, Anita's written three books, which are all available on Amazon. And um, you can tell us a little bit more about those later on. But um, I specifically remember a paragraph where you said, I had, you'd totally visioned this scenario of you lying in this hospital bed and you were saying goodbye to your family because you were so convinced that this was so real to you Mm. and there was no other option or scenario this was happening. Mm, That's a fact. It was real. At this stage, you hadn't, you had tests, you'd had all of these things that nothing said that you had cancer, but you had convinced yourself Mm. so deeply that you was dying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. 
Zero doubt, zero doubt. I had as much faith that I was dying from cancer as I had had that my religion was right. I substituted one form of complete conviction for another. Um, But this time the story wasn't so pleasant. (laughs) I believed I was dying of cancer. And and this went on for quite a number of years. Years, years and years and years. The the suffering was immeasurable. And not only was I dying of cancer, I... I had given it to myself. Yeah. And so my kids were going to be motherless. The children I wanted to protect and raise and love and to care for and give the most perfect life I possibly could. I was going to destroy their entire world because I was going to die and I wouldn't be there for them. And not only would I not be there for them, it was my fault. I was responsible for it. I had done it. And you can't leave with that level of grief. Yeah. So there was so many, there was, there's so many elements to this because Mm -hmm. you, in actual fact, it was your poor mental health that got you to the place where you was having the test. Mm -hmm. You, doctors had highlighted that there was no physical, real physical health issues, right? Mm -hmm. But the test kept coming back negative, but you convinced yourself so strongly that there was but really the issue was that your mental health needed attention. Mm-hmm. It had just been repeatedly missed and missed to the point where you'd got yourself so far in this psychosis. Can you explain a little bit to us about what psychosis actually is? Your brain fabricates a story and it might even be incredibly painful because it can't deal with the reality of the story you're in. So it makes up a new story. So I think that the sense of betrayal to my church, the sense of betrayal to God, the sense of betrayal to my father um, might've been more painful. I would not that it's more painful. It was so painful. I could not deal with it. And and the potential betrayal to my children if I was not giving them, if I was not going to make the right choice about the religion. Mm. Um, so my brain came up with another story that meant I didn't have to deal with those issues anymore. Absolutely. So instead of having to worry about all those issues, well, I didn't have to worry about that because I was dying of cancer. So that, that was the issue I suddenly had to deal with. And it was bigger than the other issues and more... Mm. Um, in the foreground, in my timeline, so that if I looked at that, I couldn't look past it to the other issues that were really causing the grief because, like, yeah. cancer was here and it blocked my view of, yeah. um, of what else was happening. So it was my brain actually in a very, very sinister hurtful and hurtful way trying to protect me yeah. from the other stuff I couldn't face. Absolutely. And I'll just add on to that as well because... Um, that's a really extreme version of, of just how powerful our brains are at sorting information and, and protecting us. Like you said, that was, a, even though it's a really severe protection mechanism, you, it's there to protect you, to stop you from accessing this other world of pain that is real. Mm. So it's fabricated this, this, this unreality, but you believe it. And it also was in the realm of reality. Yeah. So it wasn't that yeah. 
this thing, it wasn't that like, oh, okay, well, like there's a spaceship that only I see. Yeah. Like, because you're in the real world and you're taking action. And, 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 the, and radiation is an issue and cancer is an issue. These yeah. are things that happen in the real world and yeah. radiation can increase your risk of cancer. So like, how do you separate like the reality from the fantasy when the fantasy actually is could definitely be a reality? Yeah. Like it wasn't like, it's not possible. It was very possible, but yeah not necessarily true <laughs> yeah. and it, I can't imagine how how that must have felt to be in that moment and not knowing the difference between real and created or real and imagined because this is what our brains do and I talk about this so often and um, obviously that's a really um extreme scenario with what you experience but on a day-to-day -day basis, our brains do this so much where we we don't we'll, we'll we'll have a story and we might not know this part of the story, but our brain will fill that with the most real version of of what is real to us. But it might mm. it's not it's nine times out of ten it's not real. Mm. You know, like for example, if you call somebody and they didn't answer their phone, um, and then it, two hours goes past. And we create what's happened. The reason, yeah. you know, that's just a that's just a day to day example. But mm. our brains are so powerful. But mm. this just goes to show how damaging that can be. Because mm. the more we believe this, the fake stories, the deeper it can hold us, and the deeper it can mm. back. And like you said, it's to protect us from what actually is the reality and, and the things that the really deep emotions which we don't want to where it's too hard for us to access. Mm -hmm. um, you said that uh, you can't imagine what it's like to be in the situation. So let me just take you there for a moment. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have many friends, um, but at one moment there were two ladies from the school who actually showed me kindness and they invited me out for dinner. Um, sorry, in the book, I made one of them a man. <laughs> to hide their identity, which I just gave away. Okay. So there was an, um, and then one of them had actually had a brain tumor and had a big scar on their temple, big scar from where they had the tumor removed. And we were sitting at the table and they were talking about their cancer treatment. And I was like, Oh, that poor person. So terrible that they like, had to experience this. And like, I was sitting next to them and their scar was like this far from me. And then I was like, I think I'm going to throw up and pass out. And, um, and the lady opposite me, I was like, I looked at her as if to say, help me, help me, I'm going to pass out. But like, I didn't want to interrupt this conversation because it was so important. Um, and so I didn't say, and she didn't pick up on the cues because she didn't know me well enough. And then I just like passed out on the table in this restaurant and like everyone's turning around and like, they're trying to like wake me and I just like, I couldn't respond. I couldn't move like I couldn't hear properly and they carried me they carried me to the car and they dropped me home and this was like right in the middle of like the absolute worst moments mm -hmm. um how when it was affecting my husband and my family and um they took me home and one of the women said to my husband like what's what's wrong with her and he thought I was fabricating the whole thing and here I have brought this catastrophe and this embarrassment to our front yard and I didn't mean to faint like yeah. I just fainted, um, but he thought I 
sorry, sorry to my darling husband, but he thought I was doing it for attention, mm. but it was, it wasn't for attention. I didn't try to faint. Um, it was actually just part of the psychosis. Um, and then he was just ropeable. He was so angry. This was like right in the middle of the worst bits. My husband's an amazing, amazing man, but, um, he like sat me down and like, he said, you've got to, you've got to snap out of this. You have to snap out of it. I don't, I can't live like this anymore. And, um, and I turned to him and I said, I can't snap out of it. I, I've got cancer. Like you just, all you have to do is believe me so that we can prepare. Like I'm dying. Like I can't snap out of this. And he said, oh, all I want is my wife back. And I looked at him and I said, she's gone. I, I don't know where she's gone. I, know, I don't know if she's ever going to come back. Oh, my God. It's heavy. It sounds... It, it's almost too... It's hard to believe. It's hard, it's hard to imagine you right now as that person because you, you can tell this story so... Um, almost as if it wasn't happening to you, you know, it's so. Oh, I'm pretty good at like separating me, <laughs> separating myself from the stories I told. Yeah, I can't, mm. I really can't imagine what that was like for you. And my kids were like up on the balcony watching. Okay, that's my tears session for today. No more, <laughs> no more tears. <laughs> it's okay, we welcome tears. Um, so, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Let's move <laughs> along. <laughs> I'm ready to move on. So we talked. We talked about um, in our phone call how, um, and we can we can go through this part really quickly. But I think this is this is the part where we can sort of people who can't relate to your story, people who haven't experienced anything like that you've experienced, because I imagine a lot of people who listen to this won't have have, but um, but the piece is that you're such a normal person mm. you have had this really challenging experience of life you've been through a lot of things and then when you when you had your children and your children were in school and you um were sort of socializing and you decided to separate yourself from the church and you were trying to um negotiate um through life and through being in normal society and and all of this and, and your mental health issues as well. But then you experienced a very intense um, stage of bullying from other people. <sighs> from and, the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> yeah, right. And this for me was the part where I was like, <sighs> because not only have you been through this huge challenging life, that you have been navigating by yourself, you then get hit with with um, external people, external forces, trying to then push you down even further. And for me, this was the part where I was like, this is what I can help with. This is what I can't mm. help with what's happened, but mm. I can help you to share your message to in the hopes that when other people hear this, they can have some compassion to, being aware of how you respond to people because you don't know what other people have gone through. Mm -hmm. so, 
do you want to just share a little bit we won't go into detail because obviously you've got the books and we really want people to read the books and learn about your story and how it's how you know everything that you've been through but let's talk about that Okay. Uh, so that actually is one of the major reasons I wrote the book. Um, I actually think that a lot of people will relate to the faith issue, but to a lesser degree, because oh. a lot of people leave their church when they're younger and earlier. And, but I think that the, the, the guilt, uh, it, it, people will relate to that. Um, but the bullying also wanted to definitely, I thought people would relate to totally the bullying situation. And I really think that um, people don't talk about it. And I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to like blow the lid off this um, adult female bullying that's only shown in movies, usually as comedy, um, but show that this really happens. And I'm so sure there are a lot of women sufferings. I'm sure. I don't know who they are, but I know you're there and I feel really sorry for you. And I hope my story helps you. I wrote it for you. Um, Okay, so really brief summary is, um, so I had just, I, I went through therapy, I went on medication, I got my life back together. Bit shaky, <laughs> but I got it back together. I wooed my husband. We were back, back in love. It was all good. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just, but we were having financial trouble. So we decided we had to move. We had to move. Our, we couldn't afford our rent. We found the cheapest house we could just possibly find. They had enough bedrooms and they had a garden veggie garden available and so we're like fresh start to flower farm I'm gonna move to this lavender farm and grow our own vegetables and be part of like an authentic community it's gonna be cool uh, anyway you have to read the book to know all the finer details but I offended two women who were both very key people in the, the community um, I didn't do anything terrible it was just a little bit of social ineptness mixed with a bit of assertiveness. Um, And there's a big thread in the book about aggressive women not liking sensitive women. And throughout my whole life, I've had this reaction on aggressive people where they react really badly to my sensitivity. And it was like this phase of my life was just like a magnifying glass on that aspect of my personality that my insecurities, my sensitivities versus these aggressive, domineering, alpha women. It just exploded to take over my entire life just at the point that I was recovering and ready to start afresh. And I was um, ostracised. I was demeaned. Bullying's the harsher word for what I experienced, but if I guess it was bullying um but i didn't really see the conversations that went on behind the scenes to know what led up to each encounter i just had to imagine what they were talking about um based on their actions toward me but these women were just horrific to me systematically over and over and over and over and over and the more women that got away with treating me badly the more other women felt empowered to do it until like there were just like this growing number of women who felt they could just treat me terribly because everyone else was. Um, And I I was actually like terrified to go to the school. I was terrified to go to the supermarket. I was terrified to leave my house. Um, 
I was crying all the time. I was incredibly lonely. I tried to win these women over. I tried so hard to be so nice and so kind and so friendly and make conversation. And the more I tried, the more power it gave them to get this tingle of power to actually be more horrible to me because they knew I wanted their approval. So really it's everything that you see like in the schoolyard with teen girls, but these were all like 40 year old women with kids and it was the same behavior in the town where I lived. And it was, it was unbelievable. Like I had like, I had put a flower up on a pin board, sorry, sorry, a pamphlet for my photography business up on a board. And when I came back, it was all burnt. All the other flies on the, on the board were fine, but someone had burnt my flyer and they had stayed there and supervised it. So only my flyer was burnt and the rest were okay. And there was my corner of my flyer, like edged in ash. And um, people just, just be getting up and walking away. If they saw me getting in the car, driving off, if they saw me dropping really nasty comments to me, um, even when I went there, I didn't tell anyone about my mental health issues. It was my big secret that I could start again and pretend I was normal. But one of the women, one of the key women actually knew that I had some mental health issues. And I was like, please don't tell them. Please don't tell the others. Please, please don't tell anyone. I really wanted to start afresh. And one day I was walking in front of the school and one of them turned around and yelled out to me, hey, Anita, how's your health? And I hadn't been sick. And so the only reason they would have said that was because this other lady had told them about my breakdown and she was actually using it to publicly let everyone know that she knew and to humiliate me on the street. And I laughed. I just went, oh, you don't want to know. Aww. And then afterwards I was like, I just laughed when she like just humiliated me intentionally in public. And I'm just not, when people like are mean to my face, I'm just so not, ready for it and yeah of course and like no surely she didn't mean that and then afterwards like there was actually no other reason for her to say that like zero reason that was the only reason for her to say that and she didn't say it while we were in the close conversation she actually called it out Mm. up the street and another time like I went I thought and I kept trying again I'm like this surely this, this this can't be real this this can't really be happening and um and then one time we were, we were hardly ever, ever invited out. We were specifically not invited out when everyone else was invited to school events or parties or barbecues. Everyone except us was invited. And this one day a new lady moved into the school and she didn't know that we were to be excluded and she invited us. And my child was like, oh God, I've been invited to a party. And I'm like, how can I? My kids had no friends. How can I not go? And I'm like, I've got to go to like the lion's den to take my child to a party. It was just terrifying. But like you do this stuff because you love your kids. And I took her and then um, I left and I was like, oh, I got out of there because I got out. I I left early. Um, But then I came back for pickup and at pickup they said, does everyone want to stay for Barbie? You want to stay longer? And my daughter's like, please, can we stay longer? I'm like, Okay, okay, okay. And then so then I had to stay and then one of the key women who had been really consistently, perpetually awful to me, um, she had a spare seat next to her and I was on my own next to the tennis court and I'm like, should I sit down? Should I sit next to her? Like, 
I don't want to be a bad person. I don't want to be the one that's like instigating this or for them to say at all that I've been antisocial or there's any finger pointing that, that I contributed toward this. And I don't want to be a bad person. And, you know, perhaps I made it up. Perhaps I'm just fabricating the whole thing. Like, honestly, like this is, this is unbelievable. And then I said, I'm going to sit next. And I went and sat down next to her and said, hi, how are you? And she's like, yeah, good. She got up. She went and stood next to the tennis court and she just stood there on her own and just stood there and didn't turn back and look at me. And I was like halfway through saying, how are you? This happened all the time. This happened constantly. Um, oh, and the, oh, and the, one of the teachers was best friends with one of the mothers. And she sent um, books home from school to be covered. And we didn't know how to cover the books. Uh, it just my daughter came home. She was so cute. She was so adorable. Orb and her curls and um, in kindy, she was five. Oh, she was so cute. And she brought this book home and said, uh, we have to, Mrs. Sue said, we have to cover this. And I was like, oh, looked in a bag. There were no instructions how to cover it. Um, I found this gorgeous sparkly contact. I'm like a five-year-old girl, sparkly contact. You know, you can't get any better. And so I covered it in the contact and my daughter's like, oh, I don't know. I think Mrs. Sue might get cranky. I'm like, well, she didn't tell us what to cover it with. She just said to cover it. You're a five-year-old girl who likes sparkly things. And then the next day, my daughter took it to class and this teacher who was in the clan of the alpha women, she screamed at my child in front of the whole class, but she was trying to scream at me, but I wasn't there. So she screamed at my child and she goes, how could your mother do such a thing? How could she do this? And she ripped, not just the contact, but because it was attached to the cover, she ripped the entire cover off the book while screaming and basically like spitting rage at my daughter absolutely adorable little daughter just screaming how could your mother she rips a cover of and she like dramatically chucks it in the bin like just while ranting and screaming at my child and like another time like a boy at from school like whacked her across the back of the head really hard with this big plastic pole which if it wasn't plastic it could have killed her and um there were like parties that were planned and all the other kids were told don't tell anyone, but like Anita's kids are the only ones not invited, but like, don't tell, don't tell her kids because they're the only ones. And then like one of the kids would just, that was just too good a snitch. And so they'd come and snitch to one of my other kids. Your sister's not invited to the party, but everyone else in the class is. And like, we would have invited like the child to our house, like the week before. And there was another time where we tried to befriend someone and we actually took them to a park and my daughter's like oh she's my new friend and I go oh, I don't know I don't know if we're gonna get any friends from this school and then she went to school the next day I'm gonna play with my new friends and this girl came up with her little clan just like the mini mums and went over to my daughter and looked at her and said to all her friends and then pointed to my daughter she went she's poor and they put their hands on their hips and they all turned their back on my five-year-old and just stormed away and just left her standing there after, like, we had taken them to the park the week before. This was constant. I didn't stop. I didn't stop for years, years and years and years. This went on. I didn't stop. The women wouldn't change. Yeah. It's heartbreaking mm. that people could act that way towards 
you but also children mm. they were completely innocent it was just getting revenge on me for my like basically it's because I couldn't I couldn't interact socially because I still held a lot of my Christian morals and sensitivities and so I couldn't integrate with the world because I didn't want to adapt their beliefs and I was terrified of them I was terrified of people who weren't in the church so this led to a whole lot of um social anxiety and social incorrectness because I didn't know how to behave and I wanted to protect my family while developing friendships and that doesn't work you can't go into a friendship while being distrusting because they sniff it out a mile away or without conforming completely to the group so but I wouldn't conform completely to them because I still had my Christian sensibilities um and so I couldn't conform and they sniffed that out and so they're like well you're not going to conform to our group but you're not in our group and we're going to hate on you forever yeah it was interesting that you said um during our conversation last week that um because you've experienced this community this really strong community in the church and now you see the same um traits in different groups and um kind of separate um the traits that you see and mm. it's re- that was really interesting to me because um I imagine that when you're so engrossed in a community where if you don't believe us if you don't have the same beliefs as us then you can't be involved that's not mm. how I operate in any way shape or form I've always kind of been my own independent person and you know believe that other people can also have those kind of traits but do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah. So this was actually a big part of my recovery um, is I started researching psychology and actually while I was seeing a psychologist, she's like, you should be a psychologist because you're really interested in this stuff. And um, so I was quizzing her constantly. What about this? Why do people do this? Why do I do this? And then I like read a whole bunch of books um, about psychology and human behavior and group mentality and I was like oh ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. and then I realized that they were all victims to our group and all the behavior inside the church all the behavior by these women or all the behavior by any group environment I went into this um, war between sensitive and aggressive people it's all predetermined like there are roles that we play and there are like positions in each group and everyone's vying for different positions and the people at the top are always trying to topple or maintain their positions. The one down are trying to like keep the approval of the one above. And then there's the sucker. Then there's me, the sucker at the bottom who is always down there and everyone tramples on to assert themselves in the group. And anyone who's a people pleaser, you're at the bottom you want to please everyone so people can treat you like however they want and you're going to take it because you want their approval Mm. and so they're always clambering on you to get up and so then I just like I understood it all and I'm like you know what it's not the church it's not these women you could actually substitute any church you could substitute any women Mm. and they would behave the same if you have that personality type in that same situation they will behave the same 
And that was so empowering because I'm like, I don't need to hate you or that behaviour because anyone with your personality type was going to treat me that way. This isn't you. This is your role. You are playing your role and you don't know you're playing your role, but I know you're playing your role. (laughs) And that just, I I was free. I was free. (laughs) Amazing. There's any any word that just keeps coming up for me to to sort of describe you and and everything that you've been through. It's resilient. Yeah, and you know this is I love this. Can we stay here for a while on resilience? Um, because I was always the weak one. I was the pathetic one. I was the sensitive one. I was the one that infuriated the alpha women because I wouldn't toughen the f up, and so they wanted to toughen me up. Um, And there's two aspects to that. One is they want you to toughen up. They want you to stand up for yourself. But Mm -hmm. heaven forbid you stand up to them. Yeah. Yeah. You You can be tough to someone else. Don't you dare assert yourself to them. They won't have it. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And the other thing is um, resilience. I think resilience is more powerful than toughness. Of course. And so these women think they're tough because they can be aggressive and there's this mistaken perception that toughness and aggression is strength. I don't think it is. I think resilience is strength. If you can be knocked over a million times and bounce back a million times, that's strength. Yeah, absolutely. I read a quote the other day and it's quite... um... Again, I'm not going to be able to say this word for word. I do this all the time, but I can remember the gist of it. Um, And it was talking about how, um, so in this scenario, toughness would be for what you would do for other people. So you would be tough for other people, right? And you can continue to be tough, but it's always for somebody else. Hmm. But resilience is for you. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's like when we're in positions of power, you can you can be busy trying to be in your position of power, or you can be busy being powerful. Mm, that's good too. Working, I love that as well. Yeah, like one is working towards being in a position where other people will be able to see. Okay, um, and I think the actual quote was around success. So you can be busy looking successful, mm-hmm. or you can be busy you can be busy searching for success for yourself and this whole how other people perceive you but but that doesn't matter like it doesn't matter how other people perceive you because if that's not how you perceive yourself and I guarantee all of these women that you've just explained and you've described and even the teachers and all of these people firstly they're going to be projecting all of this onto their kids and they're going to be the kids are going to be growing up with all of these really unhelpful traits to be having at such a young age but also I guarantee you all of them have got self-worth issues or Mm. unable to um show resilience and have all of these that they're doing it for the for the the purpose of other people rather than themselves they'll all Mm -hmm. have confidence issues they'll all have Mm -hmm. their internal battles and it's always projection Mm -hmm. always 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 projection yeah yeah and I used to think that we would behave in a certain way because that was just our personality type because we um, were thinking things through and 
processing those and acting on our thoughts, but we're just reacting to our trauma and other people's trauma. (laughs) So much of what we do is just a reaction to trauma. Our own trauma, other people's trauma being projected on us with us dealing with their trauma. Like if there's like the one thing I've learned from everything I've been through, um, it's deal with your trauma. And like my life superficially, um, like it could actually seem quite wonderful and like there was no reason for any trauma, but like there was intense, intense trauma because I'm a sensitive person, because I wanted to be perfect, because I wanted to approve of everyone, because I was taught that there was no life, hope of life after death. Like I just think it's super, super important that people really do process their own trauma and I've seen people who have said, oh, I'm going to deal with it. 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 And they say this for years and years and years and nothing changes because they can't deal with it and they don't have the tools to deal with it. I remember my husband who's really into reading um, and he recommends these great books. And one of them was um, someone who had this process of like you go really deep into your trauma and you sit with it and you think about it and you stay there and go deep as deep as deep as you can and try and just think. And then you let it go. It yeah. I, I did it. It didn't do anything. It did nothing for me. <laughs> um, and so someone who could process, uh, I don't know. I don't know if anyone can really, really just read a book and sort out their trauma just by thinking about it. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, I needed, I needed a therapist to yeah. guide me through it. I needed like, to be coached and supported yeah. and given um, worksheets and assignments. And um, I needed medication so that I actually like was stable enough um, and not depressed and not anxious enough that I couldn't do it. Like I needed to like just be lifted up so I could actually actually think normally and then so that I could work on it and be guided through it. And that was the only way I was going to get properly better. Mm. And I, I really feel that I'm not telling other, other people to go on medication, but like really I think therapy is a bit underrated and you should, a lot of people probably should be in therapy who aren't in therapy. <laughs> and the thing is just going back to what you said about reading a book and being able to implement it well no because you can't be your own therapist and you can't be so you need a different perspective you can't create you can't solve a problem from the level of thinking it was created and when you're so engrossed in the um the problem you can't see the other way. You've, it's it's perspective which you need, and therapists and coaches will be able to help mm-hmm. you work through that. So, mm-hmm. I'm so I'm so happy that there's a happy ending to this. Story, <laughs> that you're at this place, and you've got purpose, and you're driven, mm. and you've got all these things going on. You've got your two beautiful little girls. Yeah. And you've got your amazing husband. Yeah. So, um, I think just before we round off to sort of what your what your future looks like, and 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 we'll talk a little bit about what you've got going on at the moment but um I think for me like we talked about this as well that the biggest thing for me in this story is that having compassion for people without knowing what they've been through without needing to know what they've been through but just having that compassion towards people because you just do not know what they've gone through you don't know what the battles the battles that they've been fighting you've got mm. no idea and if we can just be five percent nicer with no one saying be a hundred percent nicer but just mm. be five percent nicer mm-hmm. yeah 
such a huge difference. Yeah, it's it's so true. Like these women, all they had to do is just have one genuine smile and just go hi, or hi, how are you, and stop, yeah. or just just some sincerity, some kindness, some compassion. It was so easy just to be nice. And I, yeah, it's so important. And one day I was walking to the supermarket, which I was always terrified to do. Um, and a stranger, a woman walked past and she looked me in the eye and she smiled. And I was actually too terrified to even, I don't even remember if I smiled back. I was in such a stress state. But like, I still remember her face, that one stranger who just smiled just to be nice. And, you know, it makes that sometimes it all, sometimes it's all it takes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I'm so happy that we have a happy ending to your story. <laughs> me too. Me too. So tell me about what's going on now. Tell me about the books. Tell me about the, um, your purpose with, um, I know you're really passionate about reducing plastic and yeah. let's talk about that. Okay. So, um, I started researching plastic and anyway, I've got a little book about it called Plastic Girl and it's my journey into activism. I had absolutely no intention of being an activist. Activism is actually pretty much forbidden by the church. So I'm pretty much becoming an enemy, even more so by becoming an activist. <laughs> so that was hard enough in itself to even like use that title for myself. Um, but and I won't go into that because it's all in the book and it's a really short, easy book to read. Um, and so, but that gave me a purpose. So I have been focusing on one thing mostly, uh, which is plastic on fresh produce. And I've been fighting to reduce plastic on fresh produce. I've been fighting the supermarkets and smaller stores, and I've been trying to encourage the public to stop bagging their bananas. Um, and because I was the only one who really was focusing on that one thing, there were a lot of people talking about plastic in general, but because I honed in on one thing, I got a lot of support for people going, thank you so much for talking about that. I want, I want to support you in that message. So I got a lot of support and it's just been absolutely beautiful. Uh, and so I do a lot of that. I spend hours and hours every week um, researching, sharing news stories. I'm pretty well educated on it, on the topic of plastic now. Um, and we have lots of wonderful conversations on my pages. Like today I did one about, I stopped dyeing my hair two years ago. So I've got all these grains. So I'm like, this is my latest update. It's been two years. I haven't died. And like 50 comments, like it's the most beautiful community. And so as well as plastic, we talk about all things eco as well. Um, yeah. And I do a lot of like my blog stuff on my plastic pages. So it's too bad if you just want to talk about plastic, you're going to learn about my breakdown too. <laughs> there's, there's, um, it's a bit of everything, but like, people love it. They, they love that. I can't fake anything. Everything's authentic. And although they find that really refreshing. So that's given me a purpose and I love it. And I'm really into photography. So it's a really wonderful way that I can take photos and still share photos, even though I'm not doing it for work. Um, I spent a couple of years being an aged carer because um, my photography business died because of the digital, digital era. Um, and I became an aged carer and, oh, that was just absolutely exquisite. And I had the most amazing relationships with these elderly people who wanted my company. They wanted my conversation. They appreciated my kindness. Everything that the women detested in me, these older people loved. And so I just 
was able to give so much love back and all the the relationships that I I've, I've missed out everywhere like my kids don't have my kids don't have grandparents and that talk to them pretty much let's not go there sorry um but <laughs> we're missing a lot of relationships that most people would take for granted um and so I was able to substitute the relationships, many relationships that I missed out on with these absolutely beautiful interactions with these elderly people. And there was one couple, um, Jacqueline, her name was, she was divine. And I would spend every Sunday morning, two hours, it was a scheduled shift and I would go and I'd shower her and her husband and I'd make them breakfast and their Italian coffee. And I'd spend every Sunday morning with them. And she was the most beautiful woman you would, ever ever meet and we'd always have a big hug and she'd try and get me to finish early so we'd sit down and have a cuppa together if I could finish all the chores and it was like visiting my grandma so I feel like the world gave me what I missed out on I really feel I was gifted these experiences it was just exquisite um and so and the other thing and then so then my books so um the books were really really plastic girl was quick and easy but the other books were almost impossible to write just almost impossible they were so big and so enormous and I had so much to say it wasn't just the story it was everything I learned and my perceptions of things and to try and get that in some kind of an order that flowed in some kind of a structure and to know where I wrote what because it was so enormous it was just overwhelming and I had to keep reading about like the worst parts of my life. I had to keep reading about my breakdown. And one of the most annoying things is when people say to you, say to me, oh, it must feel really good to have like written your story down. That must've been really cathartic. No, it was hell. <laughs> Writing it the first time was amazing. Getting it out, getting it down on paper, that felt really good. But then having to edit the same words hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times like mm-hmm. it was excruciating so please appreciate the book when you read it because yeah. a lot of work went into it It was eight years to write it and it, be- it actually became it was so big that I, I couldn't I couldn't complete it so I ended up breaking it up so I chipped off part one which is a real fun dramatic read um, and it's shorter than the part I've just published revenge of the wilting flower is the big heavy middle section of the book it's although it's really dark and it's really heavy it's incredibly interesting and entertaining so I just published that and then the last section is the most exquisite happy fun section which I've written but I haven't yet edited Um, and that's about swimming with humpback whales in Tonga and that's where I really my level of self-acceptance and peace uh, went to some other amazing level it was incredible yeah amazing and we'll we'll definitely put the links to each of the books because they're on amazon right yeah and so um because i'm self-published i couldn't afford yet to have them as hard copies so they're ebooks but you can read them on any amazon provides uh, that uh you can I think a software that you can read them on any device so if you yeah. don't own a kindle you can just download it and read it on your laptop yeah or your phone. So, um, and I made them super, super cheap just so that money wouldn't be an obstacle so anyone uh, could afford them. And if you like it, please leave a review and rate it um, because that really helps other people then to have the confidence to invest the time in reading it if they know it's going to be good. 
Totally. So we'll put the links in the, the, the description and I've read, it was the, the second one that I read. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so beautifully written um, totally emotional up and down and I loved it so makes me so happy because I worked so hard to achieve that so I'm really glad it worked it's amazing and I would highly recommend it excellent and it's had lots of five well the people who have bought it it's been getting lots of five star ratings so I think it's pretty good yeah it is it is thank you so um Anita is there anything that you would like to say before we round off Maybe uh, Instagram handles as well. Yes, so I'll go through my platform. So Instagram is Anita from Australia. Facebook is Anita from Australia. Uh, Twitter is Anita from Oz, so A-U-S at the end, Anita yeah. from Oz. Um, and I have a website, which is anitahoran.com. And I've got lots of blog posts um, there. I've got a really interesting blog post I just wrote about female tribalism and everything I learned pretty much. Um, the book and after I learned the book about female relationships. So that's, I think it's really interesting. So um, have a look at that blog, but there's lots of blogs and there's a lot of stuff about plastic. There's just my thoughts on the world and there's videos and there's um, news articles. I was on war on waste uh, with the plastic and I've been in a few newspaper articles as well. There's lots of good stuff on the website. So have a poke around there as well. Amazing. Thank well, thank you so much and I will just round off just to say thank you for being so open and I've loved having this conversation with you and I really hope that um, this conversation will give people hope if anybody is struggling at the moment with any um, mental illness or even just any challenging times because you've been through so much and you've come out so Yeah, I just want to say one last thing you've just reminded me yeah. no one has a monopoly on hope they will claim they do but they don't you own your own hope and there is hope there's always hope i love that yeah. thank you so much anita thank you so much for like giving me the time and the opportunity to tell this story yeah thank you okay thank you thanks for listening guys goodbye Thank you so much for joining us on our Are You Okay campaign and I really hope this conversation helps you realise that nothing is out of your reach. If you feel like you are struggling right now, please reach out to a friend, family member or medical professional to seek help. I promise there are so many people waiting for your phone call. If this was helpful, please reshare on your socials and tag at Mindhouse School and don't forget to leave us a review.